blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending, bring from above, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my Savior and happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Praising my Savior all the day long. God, we thank you that our story is to praise you, to live forever, to praise you in your kingdom to come. And we pray that that would come quickly, that you would come for us. And um, until then, we wait expectantly for you. And uh, we know that we have the assurance of our salvation, of our peace, of our protection, um, just of all that you've bought for us. And we thank you so much for the cross and for your finished work there, for your resurrection and your soon coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Good evening, church. So good to see you uh, in your homes. I can't see you, but I'm with you in spirit. So, so good to be with you in your homes. I'm so used to saying so good to see you, how I miss you. Um, I do enjoy worship. What a blessing that we can worship together, right, in spirit and truth. Um, please open your Bibles to Judges. We're going to be in Judges 7. We've come as far as uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, tonight, <clears throat> I have a video we're going to show and right at the beginning here in a minute. But I wanted to just draw our attention to um, really God's account of this man Gideon, this judge, that we were introduced to last week just as a way of sort of 
recounting the context. You know, Gideon, um, this young man, was living in a house where his father was an idol worshiper and the family worshiped an idol. Gideon was more or less told by God <laughs> through a, a, what we call a theophany or a Christophany, where God physically appeared to him, the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and human, the, you know, human flesh that way, before him, um, and basically says, uh, hey, I'm gonna, I've heard you, we're going to deliver you from this bondage of the Midianites. And as uh, Gideon starts processing this, uh, he's overcome by fear, right? I think many of us would be afraid if, if, if God came to us and said, oh, by the way, I'm going to send you against an army of around 135,000 people. And uh, let's see how that, w that works out for you, right? We'd probably be a little nervous. Well, Gideon was, and as he went through that process, Gideon went through those moments of faith where he came back and he, he said, you know, Lord, I need some signs, and God gave him signs. And then he says, Lord, if I put the fleece out this way, if I do this, and, and God was merciful. God didn't at all get angry with Gideon because he was asking with the right heart for true, uh, really, acknowledgement from God, this is what you want me to do. And we talked about that last week, and just what a comfort that is for us, that when we have something before us that's unknown, much like the days we're living, and we seek God with all of our heart, our minds, for true understanding. And maybe, maybe we come to God, and it's something that we don't necessarily have right in our Bibles before us, and we sit with the Lord quietly, and we begin to ask him, Lord, what, what would you have me to do? And God gives us a word. And then sometimes we might come back and say, well, Lord, are you sure? Lord, is that, is that really what you want me to do? And I think those are the kind of things that sometimes I think we, we beat ourselves up. Because, you know, we hear that ye of little faith, but it's not always ye of little faith, right? So we see this movement where God is just merciful, and he knows what we need. He knows we need assurance. And how awesome was that this, this evening here? As our last song that we got to sing in worship was Blessed Assurance, right? We turned around and we began to, to sing that song, Blessed Assurance, right? And what was so what is such a blessing about that? Well, it's the assurance that God is with us, or it's the assurance of the resurrection, or it's the assurance of Jesus. Well, for Gideon, it, it certainly was going to be the assurance that God was going to do what he intended and told Gideon he was going to do, and he's going to overthrow the Midianites. So I draw our attention here now to chapter 7, where if I could call this chapter, or if I had to name this teaching here tonight, I would call it the stretching of our faith. The stretching of Gideon's faith here. And it's interesting, why do we need this stretching? Because if God had come to us all at once and says, I have this for you, and he laid it all out before us, many of us, so well, I can't speak for you, me, many a times I would say, Lord, I, I, you got the wrong guy. I, you know, tail between the legs, running in the other directions as fast as I could, right? But God is so gentle, he's so merciful. But he will stretch us in our faith. And that's a good thing. Because it teaches us not to be so self-reliant and not so self-dependent. No, it does teach us dependence, but our dependence is on the Lord Jesus Christ, not on ourselves. And that's a lesson that produces faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by what? The word of God, the assurance of God, the building up of the Lord that way in our hearts by trusting his written word and certainly by looking to the one true God. So as we begin, just understand this is the context of, 
of the stretching of faith and what this is going to produce in Gideon. But for this army, this, which will eventually be 300 men, and you watch what they can do because they realize just how big our God is. And boy, that's really relevant today when we're in the middle of a pandemic and we, we worry and we, can, you know, we have concerned loved ones, maybe sick and not well, and our, our God is faithful. Our God is able to heal. And our God has been um, just showing such grace through this entire pandemic by protecting you know, all of humanity, when you really think about it, as, as catchy as this coronavirus is, and it's amazing where we see these little hot spots, and we're seeing many come to the Lord. Well, let's jump in right here to verse 1 of chapter 7. I'd like to pray, and then we'll hear what the Lord has to say. Father, we then thank you. We thank you for your holy word. Nothing's going to stop it from going forward. God, you've declared it, and simply we fall in obedience, Lord, at your feet, worshiping you and now hearing what your spirit has to say to us. Because, Lord, we know this was written thousands of years ago as an account, but we also know what you tell us in 1 Corinthians, Lord, that, that all of this is for us today, that we may learn from those that have gone before us, from the ways that you spoke to the Israelites, Lord, for the way that you, you called them away from sin, Lord, you told them not to walk in idolatry or to play the harlot. God, that is loud and clear in my heart right now today, in my mind, and all that we're seeing with the idolatry. And, and God, we do need your perfect peace. Lord, we need a deliverance. And God, I believe you're doing it. I already believe your hand is moving. But now, God, we need to be faithful to keep our hand on the plow and keep looking forward, Jesus not being distracted by going back to the way things were. Never again, Lord. May that, that fire that's been lit in us, this downtime without all of the commotion and so busy that we didn't even have time to pray and, and be in your word. And, and now, Lord, we have nothing but time. How gracious and wonderful you are, Lord. So bless us and anoint your word tonight and speak it to our hearts for the equipping of your saints, for the work of the ministry. I ask all of this in your holy name, and I pray it with my brothers and sisters all around the world, Lord, in spirit and truth with the church here. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 7 with me, please. Then Jerubbabel, and if you remember... Jerubbabel is Gideon, right? They gave him that name. <laughs> if you remember that, it means against the Baal, if you remember back in um, chapter 6, right around, uh, let's see here, it was uh, verse 31 uh, and verse 32, therefore in that day they called him Jerubal, saying, let Baal plead against him, because he was faithful to, um, and even including his father, was faithful to say, no, we're not going to turn around and, 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 you know, and bring out my son, and you're going to harm my son because of this pagan idol. If the idol's real, then let him do something about it. And we all knew the answer to that one was what was made by man's hand certainly is not going to come alive. There is only one true Lord, Jesus Christ, God Almighty, and that's who we worship and pray to. So um, certainly that's what this is in context when they say Jerubal. And all the people who were with him rose early. That's an important lesson right off the bat. Rising early. 
getting up. I, I don't know. Do you spend time in your word? Do you wake up early when it's quiet and you're able to either have a devotion with your wife or with Jesus directly and you just open your Bible? Rising early, that's a good thing. They rose early and they encamped beside a well of Harad. Now this, just so you know where that is, that's a, that's a spring, okay? That well is also known as a spring. Um, it's near the Jezreel Valley, okay? A very, you know, beautiful area, lush area with a lot of water and what have you. It says that they, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Marah in the valley, okay? Now, what we're going to be reading about is God is going to come to Gideon and he's going to say to him, Gideon, what I want you to do is I want you to go against this Midianite army. And I know that you have gone and called, if you remember back in verse 35 of chapter 6, he sent messengers throughout Manasseh because that's Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh that way, who gathered all behind or gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. These are the soldiers he was trying to gather, if you remember, okay? And he's always, God's going to say, all these men that you called for this battle of the Midianites here, have them come forward, right? But then God's going to do something. Remember I talked about the chapter, uh, the stretching of faith? God's going to stretch Gideon's faith right away because he's going to turn around and say, you know what? The army's too big. The army's too big. So let's, let's keep going. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim the glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand is saved me. Now this is very important. You have 135,000 Midianites, right? You have 32,000, we'll read, 32,000 at this point gathered. So 32,000 versus 135,000. Now you might be saying, where, where do we get that? Well, chapter 8, verse 10 will, will tell us, you know, we, we get the, the numbers there when we add it up, um, you know, that speak to the, the 120,000 men, and then there's also 15,000 that are still alive. The 120,000 are dead. You do the math, you know there's about 135,000 in this army, okay, for the Midianites. But God so far has brought together these 32,000, these men, and many didn't step up as they should have. But anyway, there's 32,000 men that have come, and God looks at Gideon and says, Gideon, too many. Now, any one of us would be thinking, what, Lord? There's 135,000 men, and we've got 32,000, and it's too many? We're already at a disadvantage. But he said something important. He said, there's a reason for this. Lest Israel claim the glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, you may, you may be looking at this and say, nobody would ever do that. May, may I play a clip for you here for a moment? This is from Andrew Cuomo, who's the governor of New York. Some of you know I'm from New York originally. And just two days ago or so, there was a clip that happened during his debriefing in the morning. It was about an hour debriefing. It's, we're going to fast forward to the, the short clip. It was really, if you looked at the entire debriefing, it was about a minute 39, where Andrew Cuomo was asked a question about, hey, when is it time to open the economy, right? That's what all of us have been thinking about. When are we all going to get back to work? We want to do it in a safe way, but when are we going to get back to work, right? Be able to meet together in the church again. Fair question. Well, Andrew Cuomo starts describing about you know, you don't have to watch the whole video, but he starts describing this 
idea where he says, we've got this under control. We know what we're doing. He's talking about himself and his staff. And he goes so far to say that, look, it's like a, 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 a plumber turning on a, a faucet, controlling it. He says, we can control this. It's a dense populated area. If, if I open up it too fast, it's going to spread like wildfire. And, you know, if I crank it down a little bit more, it'll slow down. We control it. And then he says something very blasphemous. I'm going to step out of the way and I'm going to let you watch this here. I've asked the, the video team to put this on for you and to play this video. Um, take a look at this, please. Tomorrow. It is directly a result of what you do today. The number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Fate did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. And that's why we... Did, did you all just see and hear what I wanted you to see? Did you all just hear that clip? Here is a man where God, in one of the biggest hotspots in the entire United States of America with the pandemic, with the COVID-19, the coronavirus in New York City, more deaths than any other city, more uh, catastrophe than anywhere else in regards to this pandemic, mostly downstate, not upstate, if you know New York. And yet this man has the gall to turn around, God showing mercy. I mean, what is it? I think nine or nine or I don't know, 19 million people in the whole state. I think there's somewhere, maybe 21 million. I could be off, check your numbers. But nine million directly located in downstate. On Manhattan alone, easily. This virus spreads three to one. For every one person, quickly three people can get it, right? In heavily concentrated areas. The first breakout was in New Rochelle, New York right in Westchester County, not even in Manhattan, because one of the gentlemen had attended two different organizations where there was 200 people or more conferences, and he was at both, and it just spread like wildfire. You tell me the hand of God isn't upon this when you see the numbers even as staggering as they are in New York City? They're nowhere near what they could be if God's hand didn't restrain it, because they're so close-quartered. And this man had the gall to say, God didn't do it. God didn't do it. Faith didn't do it. You see, this is why God has to work in these terms and conditions, because he knows the nature of man, that man will take credit for everything. He will take the glory from God. And that's what we just saw, blasphemous as it was, a man standing up and taking God's glory. It reminds me of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. When he stood on the balcony, he looked and said, look at how marvelous all this is. And it wasn't very long, friends, till what? He found himself in a garden like an animal until his mind came back to him seven years later. And then he began to praise the one true God. I think it's important you see this. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. It's happening right before us. Lest Israel claim glory for itself, lest New York, lest Pennsylvania, lest New Jersey claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me.
Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Now, that's more than two-thirds, right? We can do the math there. And Gideon must have been a little bit surprised. If I'm Gideon, I'm, I, I, I probably, you know, Gideon was dealing with some fear early on, right? So Gideon's very in touch with that. He understands that. Only to find out that he turns around and he says, Lord, what do you want me to say? You want me to say if you're afraid? Well, Lord, I... Okay, if anybody's afraid. And then you watch two-thirds of the army walk away, and you, and you see 10,000 remaining. Now, it's 10,000 to 135,000, right? 10,000 soldiers to 135. Already, you're, you're, you're already at a disadvantage. Now, you're at a real disadvantage. But is God done? No, he's not done stretching. He's not done stretching Gideon's faith, Right? But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. And isn't that an interesting thing? That even with 10,000 against 135,000, as, as, as anybody could plain as day say, clearly the odds are in favor of the Midianites. For anybody with 10,000 soldiers and an army to beat a 135,000 soldier army, clearly that's a, a miraculous act of God. No man could do that on his own. But even in spite of that, he knows the nature of man, that man would say, what? I did it. I did it. It, 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 it. It's me, right? We just watched the video. It's, uh, we control it. Oh, my. God's not done yet. But the Lord said again, the, pity are, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Oh, I like that. Don't you want God testing your army? I don't want to be the one testing them and seeing if they're battle ready. God will test the heart. He knows what they're doing. And many have speculated, you know, how did God do the test? What was he think? You know, what was God thinking? How was he trying to figure out? We really don't know. I mean, there's a lot of suggestions out there, but then it will be that whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, that same shall go with you. Um, and of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps. You got the mental picture here? He's not talking about picking it up like this and like that. He's saying your hands behind your back or in front of you, I guess like a dog, and I'm not going to demonstrate, but you get the point. You stick out the tongue and you, you go to town on the dog bowl, right? Except we're talking about this spring in... Um, near the Jezreel Valley there. So, you know, the men that are going to do that, you'd be like, what? Who does that? Like, I'd be looking and say, what, are we going to have one guy? I mean, that doesn't know that you get on your knees and you scoop up the water? I mean, clearly, this is going to be a, a limiting factor here. But he says, but this is what I want, right? This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. This is God's plan. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue and dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. Now, out of 10,000, what is that? 3%? 300? 3%? Okay. Just think about that for a minute. 3% of them. And the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Now, I don't know about you, 
I was stretched at 10,000. I'm now going against an army of 135,000, and I've got 300 men? That's effectively like two church services here together. Now, I know there's some really tough guys in this church, don't get me wrong, and, and some gals, by the way, too. Don't get me wrong. Hey, I'd put you guys against anybody. But against 135,000 people? I mean, those are some odds, right? I mean, you, you do the math on that. That, that. That's a what, a one to every 450? If you take 135,000 and you divide it, that means for every one soldier, he would have to kill 450 of the enemy. Those are incredible odds. What if one gets slayed or knocked down? Now the other guy's got 900? I mean, you, you see how this compounds. This is a big deal. But not for God. Not when your God is bigger than the world that he created. Not when your God holds this entire world in his hand. Not when your God is complete and full of power. Power is defined by God, not absent from God. Do you understand that? Our idea of strength it has to be measured against something. It's not each other. God is always the metric. God is always the metric in our lives. Truth, love, right? Sincerity, righteousness. It's always the Lord. That's the metric. Well, he tells everybody else, hey, those who lapped, you know, those who drank the water by their hands, separate them. And the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. God promised victory, didn't you? Didn't he? When God promises you victory, as we just we just celebrated Resurrection Day. Our Lord's a promise keeper. We can count on any and every word he says. We can hang on them because he's unable to lie. He's unable to bear any false witness or any truth. When Jesus says, I will resurrect you, you will be with me today, absent with the body, you know, present with the Lord. That's not wishful thinking. That's a guarantee. There is nothing more foundational than the word of God. Again, you want to measure all truth by the book of truth. That's why men and women for hundreds of years have put their hand on a Bible to swear before truth because it was absolute and there was nothing greater. This instruction manual, these love letters you have before you, the depth to it. It's not just a mere book or books. It's the inspired word of God. Every time you open it, do you hear the, the whispering in your ear, I love you. I love you. Follow me. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's the only book I know that is God-breathed and living, dynamic, powerful. God says, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away the rest of Israel. Wait a minute, time out on the field. What? Trumpets? What are we doing at Jericho? 
I mean, what are we doing at Jericho again? We're going to go to a wall, walk around it, trumpets? What do we need trumpets for? Where's the swords, man? Where's the machetes, right? The Thracian swords. Where's something? Trumpets? What did God say already? I'm going to make sure, Israel, you know it's not by your hand, right? It's by the Lord. I love that, not by power, not by might, but yes, you know the rest of the passage. Very good. So they take their provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And it happened on that same night that the Lord said to him, just happened, by the way. I like how it writes it in there. It just happened. No. No, God was very deliberate because he already knew Gideon's heart. He knew Gideon had just seen everything before him. He knew there was 300 men. And Gideon in his heart began to become uncertain. He was wavering a little bit. He was a little bit fearful. He needed assurance. Just like we began to sing tonight, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Right? We need that assurance. And God wants to give us that assurance. He never withholds himself. He wants to give every one of us that assurance in every aspect of our lives. Well, he, he says, and it happened on the same night. And, and that's what's so beautiful. It's causality by God. Causality for God is, ah, it happened for us. It's everything. It's everything. The Lord said to him, arise and go down to the camp or against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. <laughs> he makes it plain and clear, doesn't he? Very plain and clear, right? Who was in command? God. But if you are afraid, I like how he adds the conjunction, but do you think God knew Gideon's heart? What do you think Gideon was? Gideon was afraid. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, right? Sounds like a Moses deal, right? But take Aaron with you. He sends them out two by two often. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. I love how God gives us and guides us because we all need assurance. We all need this encouragement. And God is faithful to do that. And, and we ultimately should be expectant of that. We never want to presume on God, but to not look to our father, our dad, and, and not to expect that comfort when he's sending us on a mission, wherever that is and whatever we're doing, well, he's always going to be with us and encourage us. It's his will be done. He's going to be us, and he's going to give us the assurance we need. We just need to seek him in that. So then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were laying or lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Again, about 135,000. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in the multitudes. I would say so. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread 
tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Now, this isn't like a dream I have of meatballs and pasta and food, you know, that I might dream about. And this, isn't that, this, isn't, this is significant. There's meaning behind this. Barley, typically, when you look at the, the different construct of the bread, matters. Barley's a poor man's bread. As a matter of fact, barley was predominantly given to the animals. It really wasn't given to humans for consumption, although some would eat it. Again, the poor, the needy, but barley as itself, it was a, it was a, a poor man's bread. What's it speaking to? It's speaking to humility. It's speaking to humility here. So here's this man. He has this dream of this barley loaf. He's not going, mm, that looks good, you know. It, it's not to conjure that kind of a mo- It's like, what is that doing there? That, it's almost like a humbling kind of thing. Like this barley loaf is rolling in on town here. And then what does it do? It takes and knocks something strong down like a tent. Now, these aren't tents like you pop up in your backyard. These are tents for armies, military. They can, many, you know, many, ten, five different people, they could sleep under this tent. It's quite large. And they got big, heavy poles and everything like that tied. And he says, this little piece of bread is going to come and knock it down. It's prophetic. God allowed that dream, didn't he? Into an unbeliever, a Midianite, to do what? To put fear to show them what was going to happen, but to also allow him to see so that Gideon, as it says, it happened, just so happened, that Gideon goes down and catches him telling this dream to his friend. And so Gideon's hearing this going, even the, even the enemy knows. And then they give a, 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 the real translation to it, or the explanation, maybe better put. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon. How did they know that? How did they tie a barley loaf or a barley bread to Gideon? Because remember what I said the barley was meant to represent? A humbling, something insignificant, so small and puny that you would never give it attention. Is a barley loaf. And so when they knew that they were going to be battling with Israel, they thought of Israel as so puny and small and insignificant. And Gideon as the judge. He fit that perfectly, right? He's a very meek man. This isn't a man that you'd look at like a, you know, maybe a big figure like a Goliath or somebody like that or, you know, that would draw your attention. Wow, look at this guy. No, no, no. This man would be like a barley loaf. Barley bread, humbling and, you know, insignificant by, by man's estimation, by the way man would look at it. But he says, but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand God has delivered him, Midian and the whole camp. You know what this just reminds me? God can take something worthless, something so insignificant, and he can destine it for great things, for great victory. You know, as I was reading this, I, I happened to think and said, Lord, just how insignificant, you know, how inadequate I am to do the work you've called me to do under shepherd. 
And I said, Lord, it brings you great pleasure to use the insignificant or inadequate. Because again, Lord, it's all the glory to your name. Nobody can look to Gideon and say, wow, Gideon, you're such a great soldier. The way you handle the sword or the, the trumpet, right? The way, the, way you, the way you carry that, you know, that trumpet around or the way you, you, you carry, you know, the torch around as we'll read here in a little bit. Um, no. It's the work of the Lord. He says, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. And everybody's going to know it. And you can't miss it. And it's really special when you begin to see the hand of God moving. And I've already started to see his hand move in the wake of this pandemic. Many getting saved. A flattening of what everybody's calling a curve in a model. There's no way anybody could have predicted that. All the models said months, a month ago, oh, it's going to be 10 times where all of this stuff, and I'm not saying it couldn't have been, but I'm saying God showed mercy. And I know it's not over. There's still other states and there's still things to be done, but God is stretching. God is stretching the faith of men and women. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? And so, you know, Gideon sees this. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. You would too, and you should now. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise. So what does he do? He goes back encouraged. He comes back to the troops, the 300, against the 135,000. No longer is Gideon going, hey, man, these odds don't look right here. It's lopsided. Gideon's like it could have been 5 million. Me and God are a multitude. You 300, come along and watch us. I don't even need you. God's going to deliver me. You watch what God does. Because when the hand of God moves, nobody can stop it. That's our God. And he's the ancient of days, and he hasn't changed. He's the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is nothing that has changed in the very character of God. He is as strong then and now, and it will never cease, ever. And that's why I can have such a confidence that no matter what happens, the Lord is in control, and it's his account, and I need to get on the, <laughs> the same page with God. I need to be worshiping God. I need to get my priorities right, and I need to follow my Lord and Savior, and I'll follow him in anything. Why? Because he's the great deliverer. He delivered my soul, and one day he'll deliver me from this spacesuit, this corruption will put on incorruption, and I will stand before my loving God, my Lord and Savior, and I will worship and kiss his feet and thank him for all the ways that he blessed me, and I didn't even understand because of my lack of knowledge, my kenoskoing, or ido in the Greek, but my, my ability to progressively understand. Notice that Gideon didn't need to understand all of this. Gideon didn't need to have it figured out, did he? 
right now. Every other step of the way, Gideon's putting a fleece out there. He's turning around and going and watching the dream. Now all of a sudden he goes back to the troops. Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. He's confident. He knows. And then he's going to give him this battle plan. This battle plan. Nobody would think of this battle plan. You might be saying, well, how did, how did Gideon get the battle plan? Well, don't you remember chapter 6 in uh, verse 34 where it said what happened? The Lord, the Holy Spirit, came upon what? Gideon. That's how he gets the battle plan. Spirit-led. So he turns around. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. That sounds like a, a good battle strategy, right? That's a real aggressive. What are you going to do, go blow the horn at them? Well, that's exactly what they're going to do. Because of the noise and the lights and the sounds and everything going around them, when they come upon this camp, they're all going to fret. Their hearts are going to explode out of them. Some people are just going to die from that. Others are going to run, and they're going to be pursued like dogs, and they're going to be destroyed. Remember I told you that one to uh, 450? That's exactly what's going to happen. Because God said so. Thus saith the Lord. God's hands never slack. So he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord, oh, by the way, and of Gideon, right? Reminds me of Jericho a little bit here, created confusion. So Gideon and the hundred men were with him and came to the outposts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch. Just as they had posted the watch, they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and, that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing, and they cried out, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. Could you imagine this? Play the video in your mind. 135,000 people booking, getting out of Dodge, man. They're like out, right? And the guys are like, we're doing this. We're really doing it. And they're hitting the trumpet. They're smashing the things. And Gideon's like, yeah. And the guys are like, oh, my gosh, this is Lord Jesus. You're doing this. God, Father, you're doing this, right? They're, they're, they're just as surprised as it's all happening. Remember, it's not like they're reading about it. They're, they don't know what to expect. They're like, okay, so what are we going to do? We're going to smash these things, the lights, the sound. And then all of a sudden, these guys turn off instead of running at them and knocking them out, you know, you know the 300 of them, they run, 135,000 men. And, the, and they're booking to get out of there. I mean, I can just see it. It makes me laugh because it's like you just can't make this up. You just cannot make this up the way that God does this. And it just shows his mighty hand. It just shows his mighty hand. You and I would never do it this way. We would, man, we'd have battle plans. I'd have, you know, all kinds of blueprints and drawings. I'd have a, you know, like a chess match. I'd have this thing laid out. I'd have a primary, a secondary, a tertiary option. I'd have flanking, man. I'd, you know... <laughs> And he takes them down there and he grabs it, throws the thing down and they just book. I, I, what can you say? 
Is anything too hard for our God? Is there anything he doesn't know? I mean, really, look at all the things going on in your life now and your circumstances. If God tells you to break some glass, I don't mean that like other people's glass, but God tells you to break, you know, you get the point. What can he do in your life? And if he wants to call you home right now, what are you going to do to stop that? And why do you want to stop it? Why would you want to stop that? If that's the very best, don't you want God's very best? See, that's where we all come to the rub. We, we got to decide what we really want. Do we want to follow God, or do we want to follow God when it suits our will and plan? Are, is God part of our plan, or are we part of his? Who's the author, right? Who's the author of the account? Well, clearly, everybody here knows it's not Gideon. He's judging, he's leading, but they all know it's the hand of the Lord because nobody else would do this, right? So they blew their trumpets, they break their pitchers in their hands, and man, they just end up booking and running out of there. <laughs> and when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel uh, Meloah by Tabeth. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Now they show up after the battle's in hand. All the guys back in verse 35 of chapter 6, when he says, hey, who's coming out with me? And they had 35,000, right? at that, Or 32,000, I meant to say, at that time. And God sent the most of them away. But now that the battle's in hand, they're all like, yeah, let's go get the booty, right? Some of you like when I use that term. The, the, the riches, the treasures, right? That's what he's talking about. He's, they're all coming out now. They're like, hey, you know. So Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh. Again, Gideon being from the tribe of Manasseh. And they pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and seize them from the, or seize them the watering places, from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, who names their kid Zeb? I like Zeb. Zeb, you know, it's a good name. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the wine press of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So Ephraim delivered Oreb and, and uh, Zeb here. Um, what, what an amazing comparison, right? As a matter of fact, this is going to get compared in a, in a minute here because Gideon is going to give the most diplomatic and humble response, right? Uh, it's beautiful because what's going to happen is Ephraim's now going to get upset and said, why in chapter 6, verse 35? They're not going to say it that way. Obviously, there was not a chapter 6, verse 35, but they're going to say, hey, why did you turn around and call Manasseh, Asher, and Zebulun, and you didn't call Ephraim or Ephraim, why, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you call us? Why now, right? They're actually going to raise stink with, you know, Gideon here. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. sharply. What have you done? Why didn't you call us, Right? Hmm. 
So he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Listen to that response. What have I done? Right? What's he trying to say? Look at the actions and the things I've done. What have I done now in comparison to what you did? What did they just do? They just pursued Oreb and Zeb and killed them, didn't they? The two uh, leaders that way in the Midianites, right? So he's saying, look, what did I do? He's playing down. He's being humble, right? He's being humble. You know, he could have come at this harshly. He could have said, what do you mean? I didn't need you. God told me. He says, well, no. What have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Ebiezer? Do you know what he's saying there? It's like a proverb. What he's trying to say, he relates it to the vintage of grapes. He's like saying, what's my vintage? Because these are the vintage of Abiezer, right? That's his family. You can look back to chapter 6, verse 11. You know he's of the family of Abiezer, Joash, and what have you. He says, what's of my family? What's it? To, you know, the clan, in other words. He says, to the clan or the tribe of Ephraim. Look at Ephraim. How big and how wonderful Ephraim's have, you know, is. You see what he's doing there, right? It, it, to me, it's, it reminds me of a proverb. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 15. Look, look in your Bible. Turn to Proverbs chapter 15, please. It reminds me <laughs> what it says right there in verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction. But he who receives correction is prudent. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. It's a great proverb. You should continue reading it uh, after service center in your devotional time. Great proverb. But that's what he does here. He, he, he just, a kind word turns away this wrath, a soft word spoken. And so, you know, Gideon, very diplomatic, right? Um, very humble in his response. He doesn't break their spirit. As a matter of fact, look what he continues to say. God has delivered into your hands, Ephraim, the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. What a humble man. What a humble judge, right? God used him, pulls together this army of 300. God gives deliverance through this crazy, insane battle plan, as we would call it, but it isn't insane. It's perfect, according to God's standards. And they literally defeat 120,000 Midianites at this point, right? There's going to be 15,000 they're still going to be pursuing. Notice with me that Gideon doesn't sit back on his laurels yet. You got to see how it finishes. But he doesn't sit back on his laurels and say, well, you know, like Israel had been doing, 
If you remember, even at the end book of Joshua, and really in the first two chapters of the book of Judges, they didn't pursue. They weren't even in the book of Joshua pursuing all their enemies to wipe them out of the land. But Gideon will. Gideon will go after them. He will be obedient that way. He'll continue on. But I just, I want you to think, what do you think the problem with Ephraim was about? You think they were insecure? Maybe. But I'd like to draw your attention. What did we just read in Proverbs 15? It says, a fool doesn't like correction. Have you ever met people like that? You try to rebuke or bring correction, right? And they get angry. They actually get angry at you. It becomes a whole defensive fight and the whole thing. And you're, and you just, you sometimes you're like, Lord, why did I, why did I say anything? I didn't want, I didn't, I did not want this. I just wanted to be faithful. You showed me something, and I, I shared it in love. But, but sometimes the root of that is pride. Most of the times, I would, I would suggest to you, it's pride. And if you look at Ephraim, look at their answer, right? It says, when he turned around and he, you know, was diplomatic and humbled himself and poured on the love to uh, Ephraim that way, they said, oh, okay then. Th- things are okay. Everything's okay. It's, it's fine now, right? It's fine. Yeah, the vintage thing. Yeah, that's right. That proverb. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, your grapes are better than my grapes, you know? I mean, really, this is what they're saying. And it would, it would be funny if it really wasn't true. How many people today, you know, my family, your family, the, you know, my son, your daughter, my son, you know, all the things we compare and, oh, they just create division and destruction in our lives. And, and you know, a good word, a uh, a beautiful word, like a humble word, it turns away wrath. Gideon was wise here because the Spirit of God was in him, and he listened to the Spirit, because it says that a, a harsh word will what? Do what? It can, it'll break the Spirit. Did you catch that in Proverbs 15? A harsh word can break the Spirit. I think that's important here. Sometimes I think the way we speak as Christians, we sear the Holy Spirit in us. We don't realize our words matter. You know, I I know at home with my wife, there's times, you know, I can be quick to say something and only soon to repent and to go back and say, gosh, that was a harsh word. I didn't mean it that way. I'm so sorry. I'm a fool. And I repent before the Lord. And and my wife says, I know you are, but uh, no, (laughs) she's she's ever gracious. She turns around and and she says, thank you, Lord. <laughs> no, she's gracious. She turns around and says, you know what? We all do that. And just what a beautiful way of just letting, you know, keeping my countenance intact before the Lord. She does a beautiful job with that. And, and the children, too. You know, we can sometimes tear down when we need to. But are we building up? Or do we just, do we just destroy, right? If we just do destruction and destroy and leave calamity, that's not of the Lord, that's not equipping saints for the work of the ministry. That's not building up. That's not, that's not a work of encouragement. There are times we need correction. You know, I look at the church staff. There's times with the staff I, I have to, you know, I'm involved in church discipline or correction. There's times, you know, there's times when the assistant pastors need to come to me and say, hey, pastor, you know, where's that in the word of God? You know, pray, pray to the Lord doesn't happen too often, but but they need to be able to do that. They need, the elders need to be able to do that because that's real love. Real love isn't surrounding yourself with yes men and yes women, you know, for women, 
not for me, but for women like that. It, it's surrounding yourself with people that love Jesus more than they love you, and therefore they're not going to be respecters of persons, but they still have the best interest in heart for you. They still want to build you up and take care of you and protect you. If, if you find one or two friends like that in your whole life, you, you have a rich thing before you. You've been given riches beyond compare. If you can just have one or two people in your life like that. I praise the Lord we have a church that in a lot of ways is modeled after that. They see the best in each other. They don't just always think the worst. They always think the best of their pastor and their pastors think the best of them because they know their hearts and they know their righteousness and they know their love. And when that happens, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's how it's supposed to work in a beautiful matrimony and a beautiful uh, marriage that way of the church. Well, clearly it was pride. So when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted but still in pursuit, right? So they'd gone a long distance. And I think it's important a lesson here. You know, you, you can get tired, but you're not to be tired of something, right? In ministry, there's times where, you know, as pastors, you, I can grow weary or tired. Maybe I'm spending four or five hours, my eyes are weary or tired, you know, prepping and everything for the Lord to speak into my heart and study. But I never go tired of spending time in the Word, right? Gideon didn't grow tired of following God. He and his men were tired in the moment. And that's a very important delineation. If you are striving to be in the will of God, friends, it's not God's will. You're chasing something else. There should be no striving. Right? There might be breaking. <laughs> there might be breaking because God needs to break us to get us into conforming to, you know, submission to his word and to him. But striving should not be part of it. If you're striving, there's something out of something amiss in your life and your relationship with Jesus. Well, they're exhausted, but they're still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give me loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of the Midianites, or the Midian, right? So he goes to these men in Sukkoth, and he says, Hey, give us some bread that we may eat. And the leaders of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give you bread to the army? In other words, is the battle already won that we should give this to you? Not, not at all the right response. So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord, notice he says when the Lord, not if. He knows Gideon's walking and trusting in Christ and God. When the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zulman into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Panuel, they're going to do the same thing, and spoke to him in the same way. And the men of Panuel answered him, as the men of Sukkoth had answered, and he, so he also spoke to the men of Panul, saying, When, again, circle that in your Bibles, I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000. All who were left of all the armies, do you see that? All who were left of all the army of the people of the east. So out of 135,000, 
we find ourselves with, or they find themselves with what? 15,000 left. Because the rest had been drawn and uh, destroyed by the sword, right? Verse 11, Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. Not like the last fight now. Now he doesn't go in with the trumpets and the clanking. Now he's going in as a, as a battle-ready soldier. God has now done what? He's built his faith. He's continued to build him. He's stretched his faith. And now he says, now you go in and you take care of the rest of this, the 15,000 like that. Do you see that? Now, if God had called them, or specifically a God initially with the 300, said, hey, these 15,000 that are over there, Gideon, I want you to go down and take them right now. Lay it down hot, baby. Go right in and take them. Gideon would have been like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not, you know, I'm not the guy. But stretching Gideon, and, I, and I'm sure it was uncomfortable for him, learning, you know, not to trust in himself and what he sees and, and even in his own mind and logic and intellect to, to put all of that aside. Because, I mean, look, I mean, it's almost common sense. 300 versus uh, 135,000, generally it does not end well. But he has to put all of that out of his Vision, out of his periphery, everything from the side. He, he has to do away with all of that. That's, that's human intellect and understanding. That's not reliance on God. He says, no, it must be reliance on God. And when you fully learn submission and reliance, Gideon, then you will find faith. Then you will find strength. And then your fears and anxieties will be smothered. And then you will find the power of following the Lord God. So when I say go, you will go. But he builds that in each and every one of us. He's doing that in our walk. He's doing that as we grow in him. So he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. That means their camp felt secure, right? When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he persuaded them and he took the, he uh, pursued them, excuse me, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. He wouldn't quit. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Hirs, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkoth and its elders and the 77 men, because Gideon's going to be a man of his word. He said, because you didn't help me, there will be punishment. And he's going to go back and inflict that punishment because they didn't show, you know, love for their neighbor by just giving them bread. Instead, they, were, they received a harsh critic response. Then he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He kept his word, didn't he? He did exactly what he said he was going to do. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are. What? Wait a minute. What just happened? Well, here we are in this account. We're going to find out. These are Gideon's brothers. These are Gideon's brothers. He got a confession out of those two guys. He says... They were as you are. So 
were they? Each one resembled the son of the king, right? Then he said, they were my brothers, true sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. He looks to his son and says, now rise and kill them, son. He was teaching him. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was, what? Afraid. You see, Gideon knew what it was, to be, what it was like to be in the shoes of Jether, to be afraid. So does Gideon sit there and say, boy, if you don't do that, you're not coming home. No, what does he say? Well, we're going to see Ziba and Zalmunna are going to turn around and say, well, you know what? We know what we deserve. We deserve death. So why don't you, Gideon, be the man to carry that out and carry out the execution? And so he's got a teaching opportunity. More is caught than taught. Is he able to do what he just asked his son to do? There's not a leader that should ever do anything or presume to ask anybody else to do something that they themselves are not willing to do. That's what a servant leader is. That's what Jesus Christ was. He was a servant leader. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still used, so that Ziba and Zalmunna says, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is for his strength, so Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's neck. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us by you and your son and your grandson, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now, Gideon still at this point has the right heart to do what? Not to draw men to himself, but to draw men to God. There's too many men today in pulpits. There's too many men today in businesses. Too many men today drawing men to themselves instead of to Jesus Christ. So they asked to be king, but Gideon asked him to be king. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. It was a theocracy, it was not a monarchy yet. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. He ends up taking about 50 pounds of gold here. This is a small fortune, right? So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out the garment and each man threw into the earrings from his plunder. Now, the weight of the gold earrings he requests is 1,700 shekels of gold. Again, that's right around 50 pounds of gold. This is a good lesson. He was taking from them. He could have said, give me everything, right? That would have been greed. But he said, give me your earrings. He was taking what was common. He wasn't living above the standard of the people, but he also wasn't living below the standard of the people. He was living right at the standard of the people. Take the earrings, right? Common. And he took that as payment. And that's a good operation for a servant of God. If a servant of God is going to be paid, they should always adhere to the same principle. You're not living better than the people you serve, and you're certainly not living under the people you serve, but you're living in similarity to the people you serve. Very similar, right? So they were glad to do this. 
Besides the crescent ornament, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were on around the necks, the camel's necks, right? Then Gideon made it into a ephod. Whoop, time out on the field. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish the race. This man was a faithful judge, but God did not call him to be a priest. You think back to Exodus, right? Exodus 28. You know, we just actually read earlier how he says, I will not be a king and rule over you. So he realized he wasn't supposed to be a king. He was supposed to be a judge. But then came the next test, and the temptation was more. And he says, you know what? I might want to be a priest. Gideon was faithful in that role as a judge because that's what God called him to be. But he was not faithful as a spiritual leader. As a matter of fact, he's going to lead the nation of Israel into idolatry. It's very important we walk in the ways God has put before us. We don't go to the left and we don't go to the right. It's not what we desire. God ordains an office for us. We have to walk that office out. We're faithful in the office he calls us to. We're not to be desiring, you know, uh, if you're an elder and the Lord has put it on your heart to be a pastor someday, that that's the, you know, it's good to desire the office of a bishop, an overseer, that's fine. But if the Lord never opens that opportunity or ordination for you, it's not something you should look back on and regret. You should look back on with praise and say, thank you, God, for not allowing me to be put into some place that I don't belong, and therefore taking upon something upon myself that is only going to bring destruction. We also shouldn't, the opposite way, if God is calling us out, we shouldn't turn around and try to meander in the soup for as long as we can till it's economically comfortable or we figure out a way that we can make that change. Because then we're not stepping in faith, are we? You see, it's what has God shown you? Well, Gideon made an ephod, and he set it up in his city, Ophra. Now, some commentators and, you know, uh, scholars have suggested this is a, a, a quick, you remember how Ephraim gave him a little bit of trouble when they came to him with the whole grapes thing, you know, and he said, well, what's with the grapes, right? Sorry, he said, the, you know, the vintage, pardon me, but they came saying, what have you done in comparison? You know, what did you do here? Not calling us when we went to fight out against the Midian, when you went to fight against the Midianites. Some have suggested this is maybe him getting back at Ephraim because that is where the tabernacle was at this area, right? And Ephraim occupied that land. And so by making the ephod, the priest, basically you're saying, you don't have to go over to Ephraim to worship at the tabernacle of the Lord. You can worship here. And that's exactly what they end up doing. So Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. They began to worship, but not God. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. It sets up an inappropriate worship that leads to idolatry. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbabel, we'll, we'll close with verse 35 here. Then Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, the son of Joash, 
went and dwelt in his own house, right? Gideon had 70 sons who were with his own offspring, for he had many wives. So now we see Gideon have a, a harem here. He's got all of these wives. He's got all of these children. Again, uh, failure as a spiritual leader, um, setting up this tavern, you know, instead of going to Shiloh and Ephraim's territory, leading these men to worship uh, this ephod here in Ophrah, his city. And on top of that, he begins a harem. Now he's marrying multiple women, having multiple children like that. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. This is going to be important. Underline this right here. This is going to explain Abimelech. So underline that verse. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. Uh, the parable from one of his brothers, uh, one of his 70 children, one of them, when they're destroyed because all six, there's 70 of them. Obviously, Abimelech is going to be one, and then there's going to be another son that's going to hide and live. Uh, the rest of the 68 will be killed by Abimelech, as we read in chapter 9. We won't get there tonight. But he's, in the parable that's given by that son, he references the servant girl. And that term is used of a concubine. That Abimelech was actually one of the sons of the concubine rather than his wife. And that should bring into picture things like Hagar, Bilhah, and others in Scripture we've, we've read about. You know, God's best and then man's second best, right? Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at an old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abezrites. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the bows or balls and made Baal-berith. Okay, this is Baal. In Hebrew, it means Baal of the covenant. It's saying that no longer is Yahweh God, their covenant God. But Baal has become the God of the covenant that Israel is now worshiping. Great sadness. How many years do you remember again? Did God allow the country to be quiet? Forty. It only takes one generation. And as we're going to read, they no longer remember God. You know, we're at that time already in our history. We have a generation that's growing up biblically already that doesn't know the Bible, doesn't know the books of the Bible. Doesn't, some people don't even know who Jesus is, never heard of his name. We have a great opportunity before us. You know, every one of us right now. I, I've encouraged you to before, share these messages out on the, the YouTube, on the Subsplash application, the radio teachings. Share them all out. Why? So that people hear the word of God and come to salvation. It's, if we're not faithful in this generation, the next generation, this country won't even be a Christian country anymore. They say this country claims right now that 70% of all the believers in this country are Christian. I don't know where they come up with that number, but that's what they say today. That's what they, that's what they claim. To me, I, I don't know. I, 
I think the number's a lot smaller than that. People truly submitted to Christ. I, I can't judge hearts, but, but my concern, that's why we had opened a school, you know, and I know our, our kiddos are online right now, and, you know, Mrs. Morgan's doing a great job with them. But I'm hoping, as the Lord leads, at the end of this, when we can start gathering, I'm hoping we have a great registration for pre-K all the way up to fifth grade because that's the next generation. And I want to get the Word of God into them so that they grow up, so that they'll teach their generation the Word of God. Because it continues. It only takes one generation. The stakes are high, friends. The stakes are high. You know, I, I, I got to ask you a question. How do you want to finish? You know, Gideon was doing a great job. He was a good judge, but he didn't finish well. When you look back on Gideon's life, when we look at the death of Gideon, look at how God had stretched him, this man of faith, the, the stretching of faith he had brought him through. Even his son he began to show and, you know, teach But ultimately, Gideon himself, more caught than taught, he became more interested in wealth. He became more interested in comfort. He became more interested in, you know, many women and a lot of children. What's that tell you? A lot of lust after the flesh. Nothing wrong with having children, by the way. But one man and one wife. You look, look back to Genesis. Polygamy is not a biblical example. Some people try to, well, the Bible, yeah, well, at one time they, they were intermarrying, sure, but it wasn't God's design. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes back and explains that, how it wasn't God's design. He says, you know, God didn't have the design of divorce. He goes right back to those passages in Deuteronomy. And New Covenant believers, it's, a, it's an open and closed case for us. I mean, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The husband of what? One wife. That's not talking about, you know, being married one time all in your life. If you're widowed or something happened, there was a divorce out of your control or something. No, it means one wife at a time. Right? There is no other option. But Gideon got caught up in all that. And because of that, his children and the rest of the nation of Israel fall into idolatry. And then we read right in verse 34... Because it says that they made Baal Berith their God, because they played the harlot. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. One generation later. How sad it is that they regard Baal or Baal their God instead of the one true living God. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubal, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. You know, just think about that. How do you want to finish? You know, many of you are in your home tonight. You know, you're watching this. Some of you will be watching this tomorrow maybe or maybe watching it again, uh, sharing it with a friend. A friend's watching this and they're tuning in. Maybe this is the first time you've, you've tuned into church online, right? And you're hearing all this and you're saying, well, I... You know, Gideon didn't start that way. He didn't want to end up that way. What happened? What did Gideon do? 
Well, it was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So when everything became comfortable, what did Gideon do? Gideon let his guard down. You know, there are people that say, I can't wait till this pandemic is over. I understand when they're mean, when they say that, you know, that we can all gather as a church, that we can go out to the grocery store and, you know, not all look like, you know, we got the masks on, the things, you got to walk on certain aisles and, you know, you got to stand six feet away from, especially you huggers out there. I know, I know, man, you guys are hurting right now. You don't, you're like, you don't know what to do. You're just hugging the wall. You don't know what to do. You're so used to hugging people and everybody's like, get back, man. Right? It's how we finish. What are we going to do? How are we going to finish? If you're tuning in and you're watching this and you're saying, man, I, I never thought about it that way. You know, Jesus spoke of parables about that. Somebody that even at the last day, they get saved. But they lived a life of carnality. They're welcomed into the, the, the kingdom of heaven when they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Nobody's guaranteed that next day. That's the, the rub, if you could say it, the problem. That's why today's the day of salvation, because there is no guarantee for tomorrow. And if you haven't asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, today is the day. Did you see a pandemic coming? The 10,000 plus people that have died? Did you know, did they know a month ago that they would be dead? Of course not. Certainly not through some strange virus that we had never heard before. We are not in control, friends. And the sooner we come to the grip of reality with that actual premise, the sooner we look to the God who is the commander, who the God who is the king, the Lord and Savior, who's going to lead. And he desires for us to be in right relationship, but he is a gentleman and he's never going to force himself. So if you'd like to know our God, if you would like to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, just bow your head with me and pray. And if you're backslidden, and that means you haven't been walking with God, recommit your life to Christ today. Again, call the church. The church office has been open. We're here. We want to minister to all those in need. If you're struggling anyway, call the church office. Send emails. You can get all the contact information on the church website, ccharrisburg.org. We're here to serve you. And that will never stop until the Lord calls us home. Father, Lord, we believe everything we've just read, Lord. We began this study here this evening with looking at uh, thousands of years ago, Lord, what you said about this man Gideon and, and how he would trust you, but you warned him, Lord. You warned him very clearly that Israel would claim the glory for itself against me. The idea is humanity would, Lord. And they would say, my own hand has saved me. And then, Lord, just two days ago, I was, Lord, you, you drew me to a governor that I was able to put up in front of the fellowship at home here tonight to see the exact words that God had warned Israel about happen today in the state of New York, in the United States of America. Lord, it's as you said, nothing has ever changed. Nothing's new under the sun as you had spoken through Solomon. 
God, you're right every single time. We need you, Lord. I need you. Jesus, I pray right now that there will be those that join me and bow their heads right now, Lord. That they'll pray and ask you into their heart. Father, I pray that if they don't know you, Lord, they would just pray a simple prayer. Father, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. And Lord God, you are the only one, Jesus, that can forgive my sins. The only one that can set me in right relationship. The only one that can pardon my transgressions and evil. And Lord, you say that if I would believe and profess that you are my Lord and Savior, that I would be forgiven in whatever I've done. Lord, you didn't put a limit on it. Whatever I've done, I will be forgiven and I will be without spot and blemish. And that, Lord Jesus, you will give me your righteousness and you will take my sin. And Lord, that is the gospel of grace. And I pray right now, Lord Jesus, that you will come into my heart and live with me. And that you will be my Lord and I will I will be your child and I will follow you all the days of my life. I will put you first, Lord. I will love you more than anyone. I will seek after you morning and night. I will rise early because my life will revolve around bringing glory and honor to your holy name because you alone, Jesus, are the only one that's worthy. Thank you for saving me from my sin. Thank you for saving me from my addictions. Thank you for saving me from my past. Thank you for saving me from all the things that are looking to do me in and destroy me. Thank you that, God, your hand is never slack and you always see the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Lord, I pray that all those that prayed that right now, you will seal their hearts with your Holy Spirit and they will be your children forever as you have commanded, Lord. And God, I pray for those that are backslidden, that, Lord, they would recommit their lives today. Father, if there's anybody out there that's been dabbling in things that are not holy, maybe they've gotten caught up in drinking or drugs or pornography or oh, sin, pride. Lord, your arms are open wide and you just want your son to come home. You just want the prodigals to come home. So Lord, we lift up all the prodigals to you tonight that tonight people will reaffirm their calling and election, Lord. They'll reaffirm their heart to follow after you, Jesus. God, thank you for the way that you meet us where we are and give us a blessed assurance, Lord. Thank you for the way that you speak to us through your holy word. And Lord, you, you, you remove our fears and increase our faith. Lord, protect us from the temptation that lies in comfort. Lord, I don't want any of us to go back to the way things were. Yes, I want to be together with people. Yes, I want us to be able to hug and all that. But Lord, I don't want to go back to the comfort 
if that, that means that, Lord, it's going to cause this country to go back into idolatry. Lord Jesus, have your way with me, with all of us. Father, we pray your will be done. Deliver us from the snare of the fowler, from the one that's trying to bring destruction. Lord, I pray you would hold your hand upon your children, your bride, and protect the church. I pray now you deliver us, Lord, from all evil and, Lord, from pestilence and famine, that you'd bring us out of this plague. And God, I pray you would fill your church again with brothers and sisters that encourage and build each other up and their lives become dedicated to your kingdom. For you said, Lord, put first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. All of these other things. We pray and believe all of this because you are a promise keeper in your holy name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed, amen. God bless you all. I love you all. Maranatha, keep looking up. Your redemption draws nigh. Good evening, friends. Good evening, church. God bless you.